One of my favorite stories in the Talmud is a story about Shimon Bar Yochai. And the story goes that you have these Jews sitting around talking about the Roman city and how terrible the Roman city is, which is ironic because if you've ever been to a Jewish city, you know the Romans are pretty good at building cities, especially if you've lived in Jerusalem, you know how inefficient it is. Well, the Romans find out about this, and like, we're going to get these guys. So they go and they decide to hide because the best place for a rabbi to hide is the Beit Midrash. So they go to the Beit Midrash, apparently a terrible place to hide. After a few days, they go, we better get out of here because they're going to find us here. And they head up north to a cave. And these two men, they go in a cave and they bury themselves up to their neck with sand, which is a very classic image rabbis like. Because for us, we don't care about the body. All we care about is the mind. And they sit there and they study for a decade eating off of a carob tree in this cave, which is the rabbi's dream. Because you're not really connected with the real world, you're just with the sacred. At the end of the 10 years, they find out the Romans are gone. They go, well, this is great, we got to leave the cave. So they walk out of the cave, and they see a person tilling a field. And they're disgusted by this. When they're thinking of the mysteries of the universe, they see a person pushing dirt. And they shoot lasers out of their eyes, and light things on fire, and God screams, get back in your cave. So they go back in their cave. Because God's not going to have them destroying God's world. They spend three more years, and then they come out again. And they see a man walking, and he has two things in his hand. And they ask him what he's doing. And he says, well, the Torah says we're supposed to keep Shabbat and remember Shabbat. And so I use these two things to keep Shabbat and remember Shabbat. And one rabbi shoots lasers, and the other one heals it. And they figure out a way with this balance of being in the world, of taking the magic of what exists in the cave, of that sacredness, and bringing it to the mundane world. Now, there are many reasons that this story is there in the text, but one of the main reasons that it's there is about how the rabbis are the most comfortable burying themselves in a cave, not actually connecting to the real world, and just wanting to be in the text. And this story illustrates how this is not acceptable. We may desire it, but we are goaded into engaging with the world and figuring out how to bring sacredness and light we found in that cave, and then pushing it into the world. And then we make it our mission to take the mundane, and then to make it sacred. Now, this week, I would like to be in the cave. This week, I want to just curl up with my texts, with the mysticism, and not have to deal with what's actually happening out there. Because if there was ever a week that captures the complexities of being a Jew in the diaspora in 2019, and the challenges that all of us are confronted with, this... This was the week to look at. So let's begin by stepping out of our cave. Last Saturday, December 7th, President Trump gave a speech at the American-Israel Council that appeared to be rooted in old, age-old anti-Semitic tropes. In a crowd filled with Jews, he said that the people in the room were not nice people, but that they would vote for him anyway because of the wealth tax. Because even though they didn't support him and what he stood for, the Jews prioritized money before values. Now, by Sunday morning, 
Jewish organizations across the spectrum had jumped on the right-wing anti-Semitism, and they were condemning it. Now, other Jews stood up, and they argued that his comments, they were just misconstrued. That when he said that this group of Jews valued money above everything else, it was actually a compliment. But either way you look at it, it was a right-wing anti-Semitic trope, which we have heard for generations. Now, you may be wondering why I'm labeling this as right-wing anti-Semitism. Because this was a week where there was right-wing anti-Semitism and left-wing anti-Semitism. While Sunday and Monday were spent with Jews discussing the anti-Semitic remarks, Tuesday was no longer about words. Tuesday was about murder. On Tuesday, a man and a woman from the black Hebrew Israelites who had posted anti-Semitic rants, they drove up to a kosher market in New Jersey, calmly walked out of their car with rifles, and they murdered the Jews inside because they were Jewish. And then on Wednesday, it was being investigated as a hate crime and more domestic terrorism in our country. Just earlier today, the mayor of Jersey City, Stephen Fulop, said that he believed that the two gunmen were actually planning to target a yeshiva, which was three feet to the right next door, which had 50 children inside. And then that night, on Wednesday night, Jaron Kushner then released an op-ed explaining the executive order that was going to be signed the next day that would fight anti-Semitism on the left. Now, Kushner, he linked his op-ed to the ADL study that has shown the rapid rise of anti-Semitism over the years. And the cover of that link in this picture is of the neo-Nazis in Charlottesville carrying tiki torches chanting that Jews will not replace us. Now, ironically or not, these are the exact same neo-Nazis that Trump called very fine people. Now, while on its face, this order, it may seem like a step in the right direction, that anti-Semitism will not be allowed, by Thursday morning, the divide among the Jewish community was beginning to show itself again. By Thursday, Jews were clearly divided on this question and asking not only was this good for the Jews, but maybe this was bad for the Jews. In a conversation I had with a politician just yesterday, I was reminded by them that it was in Europe that we were told that Judaism was a nationality and not a religion. And historically, if you go back, any times that Jews are considered a different nationality or race, things have not turned out well. The alt-right, they support Israel because they believe the Jews should not be in this country because we do not belong here. Well, while this may not have been the president's intent, there is historical precedent to why Thursday's announcement should, at the very least, give us pause. And I'm not even mentioning the debate regarding if this is squashing free speech. Now, I'd be remiss in talking about anti-Semitism in, in our week's news without looking across the pond at the UK. Because earlier in the week, ahead of the elections in Britain, the Simon Wiesenthal Center named UK Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn as its top anti-Semitic person or event in all of 2019. And they warned that if Britain would become a pariah if it elected the hard left leader as the prime minister this week. He was not elected. And then the Jews across the UK, they breathed a sigh of relief, and every newspaper in Israel will not stop talking about it. And that brings us to today. 
Friday. At this point, nearly every person is probably disagreeing with something that I have said. Because every single side of the Jewish political spectrum appears to be in conflict with the other side of the Jewish political spectrum. And all of that conflict, which is caused by what is happening outside of our cave, outside of our cave, our shelter, our dream world, imagining of what this world could be. Because if I was just in my cave, I would only have to focus on the parsha of this week, Vayishlach. And to be honest with you, I am tired of the amount of noise outside of our cave. That from my vantage point, in many respects, we are so consumed by that noise, by the conflict caused by the anti-Semites on the left, by the conflict caused by the anti-Semites on the right, by the anti-Semites in Britain, by the conflict among Jews on the right and Jews on the left, that we're no longer focusing or talking about what made us Jewish in the first place. We spend so much time shooting our own lasers out of our eyes at what's happening in the fields that we've forgotten to carry the sacred wisdom from our cave into the world and then to make a balance. This week with Vayishlach, our main focus is conflict. Our main focus is fearing the future, fearing survival, and as a result, getting absolutely nowhere. Jacob has been running his entire life since his brother Esau told him he was going to kill him for stealing his blessing. Jacob and Esau have been in conflict since they were in the womb. Jacob's name even means the one who holds his brother's heel. Jacob and Esau were not able to live their lives because their life was in conflict with the other. They were in conflict with who got the field, who got the land, who got the blessing. And this week, that conflict, it comes to a head. And Jacob is finally going to confront his brother. But before he confronts Esau, Jacob crosses over the Yabok River, and he does it alone. And if you look at the name of the river, Yabok, it's actually Jacob's name in Hebrew with the letters changed around and the ayin dropped. So it's as if he's actually crossing over himself, crossing away from the fields and into his own personal cave to remind himself who he is and what he could be. As Rabbi Rodich spoke about, he wrestles all night with a man, and some rabbis say he's wrestling with God. But in the morning before dawn breaks, before Yaakov can see the world and to confront this reality with his brother, he grabs the heel of the angel, just like he grabbed his brother's heel. You see, that heel is what he holds on to. It's what has been holding him back his entire life. He's repeating the same patterns, and the only way towards a new path is to take what he has learned into the darkness, to take what he learned in that cave, and to hold these two realities together, to bring sacredness into this world, to finally let go of the heel, to let go of his divided view of the world that he experienced in his childhood. And it's with this that Yaakov finally has his name changed from Jacob to Israel, from one who holds on to the past to one who actually wrestles with the divine, one who wrestles with sacredness. 
And as he limps into the light and back across the river, he sees his brother. And instead of fearing him, he hugs him, he kisses him, and they cry. It's a moment the reader never expects. The reader's been girding themselves for conflict. And what we see is that when we're able to take sacredness into the mundane world, we can bring about change. Even with the person who seems to be so far from us politically or religiously. We're living in times where conflict can feel like it's in every single direction that we turn. Times we're seeing the other as the other has placed us in a defensive position instead of one that carries the warm, embracing, and wise light that we found in the safety of that dark cave into a world that feels way darker. A world that feels like it's filled with hate and with conflict. Our tradition has been our light. This parsha has been our guidance, and each of us, we must be careful not to be taken and so absorbed by all of the noise that we forget what it actually means to be Jewish in the first place. To be so distracted by all the anti-Semites that we forget to talk about Judaism. To remember all that we learned inside of that cave, and then we use what we learned, and we step out into the real world, and we heal it to bring sacredness to the mundane. Shabbat Shalom.